and welcome to Happy London Press live event uh, to meet the thriller writer Andrew Siegel. Andrew is our best-selling author whose chilling novels have an exciting and different crime thriller voice. He has introduced relevant uh, choice of character uh, who he names Tammy Pierre from the Caribbean. Many of our readers have commented that they really enjoy Andrew's believable worlds and complex plot, but he likes to have them guessing at the end. Previously, Andrew has written a large collection of short stories, each with a subtle twist. We have published the first of four collections, and the first being I Am A Gigolo, and later on this year, we'll be releasing I Am A Contract Killer. However, our author's main love is for the full-length novel, and we have now published three of his crime thrillers, with more to come. Andrew become inspired to create his hero with an avant-garde private investigator, Tammy Pierre, for his new series of crime novels. In 2020, Happy London Press first introduced her in The Lime Reader's Murders, featuring Tammy uncovering a dark and traumatic murder of three children in a British seaside town. But as Andrew develops his central character, so do the plots. In his latest book, The Black Candle Killings, we encounter dark magic from Trinidad, and within which Tammy gets herself embroiled. Let us now hear from Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. Hi. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Well, we'd like to talk about your latest novel, The Black Candle Killings. Tell me, what inspired you to write it? It was inspired by Tammy herself. The first novel I wrote involving Tammy Pierre was The Lyme Regis Murders, and it seemed natural to continue the character and continue to develop her um, in The Black Candle Killings. In The Lyme Regis Murders, I had a theme, and I wanted a theme for each of the novels I wrote with, with Tammy Pierre. The theme in the Lyme Regis murders was the killing of stepchildren. We know that in the wild, a lion that takes a new mate will frequently kill her existing cubs, but he's not prepared to rear them himself. They're not his. And in the Lyme Regis murders, we have the same sort of situation. How often have we seen on television a distraught couple saying, can you give us any information our child has been murdered or otherwise kidnapped? What can you tell us? And how often does it turn out to be the stepfather that's done the killing. So I started off with that theme for the Lyme Regis murders and then dragging Tammy onto the, uh, the Black Candle killings, I thought, well, okay, let's make the theme here uh, the theme of black magic and voodoo. Oh, that's fantastic. Black magic plays quite a central feature in your new book. Um, why did you choose voodoo? Dark magic is, yes, the centre of the, of the plot into the Black Candle killings. Tammy's half Trinidadian, uh, my first wife is from Trinidad. Um, I've been to Trinidad on many occasions, and I can remember years ago uh, speaking to my brother-in-law, Frank, saying, tell me, what is it you can tell me about Obia, which is another name for voodoo? And he said to me, the best thing I can tell you, Andrew, is it's all superstition, but avoid it at all costs. You just never know what you're going to turn up. And people who see rituals are often badly affected for quite a long time afterwards. So with Frank's sensible advice ringing in my ears, I ignored all he had to say, borrowed his doubts and drove into the hills to see some rituals myself. Uh, I forget how I got there, but as I approached, I could see smoke billowing everywhere, and I could hear the sound of drums as I got closer, until eventually I could see in a clearing an awful lot of people. So I turned the car around, ready to make a quick escape if I needed to, and then went to watch and witness. There were a number of other witnesses there as well, tourists. I got chatting to an American guy that was there. I said, you know, what goes on? He said, well, watch for yourself. There were lots of women in long white dresses, mostly big women, dancing around to the sound of the drums that were, that were beating on and on. It was, it was quite compulsive in a way. I resisted the temptation to join in the dance. However, they were dancing, and the American guy said to me, you wait, one of them will catch the spirit, what's that? And then the others will follow suit. Well, one of them started jerking, sort of hysterically, fell on the ground, arms and legs twitching everywhere, and then, and then others followed suit. The weirdest sight ever. Then I said to him, what's going on over there? 
There's a guy sitting on a, a large fat book. And he said to me, that's a Bible. Really? Wait and see what's going to happen next. So after a while the guy got up off the Bible. There were loads of fires going all over the place. Little fires. Hence the smoke. He got, and he jumped over the fire. Then he jumped back again. Then he jumped the third time. Then he came around and sat back on the Bible again. And then the Obia man. So it was an Obia man or Voodoo man who runs these ceremonies. Not the tall statuesque type you see in the James Bond films, but a little wizened creature, uh, bare-chested, cheeks were white, nose was like foreigners. A lot of the guys there had their faces in white. It's like looking at living ghosts. And he had what looked like the bottom half of a sari, if you like. So the top half was naked, the bottom half wasn't. He brought out a goat's head, which was dripping blood, and he held it over the fire till the blood dripped into the fire. I said to the guy, what the hell goes on? He said, well, what goes on is that in a second, he's going to cut off a piece of the goat's cheek and give it to the guy sitting on the Bible. It's, a, uh, it, uh, it's, it's supposed to get rid of a duppy. A duppy is an evil spirit, it's a ghost, whatever, that may infect somebody who's been cursed with it. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Okay, next I noticed black candles, which seem to be scratched along the sides. You know, what are all the candles? Well, the black candles are there if you want to get rid of someone. I, I, I must emphasise that there are two sides to every coin, and there are also lots of gentle sides to hoodoo and ovia, but this is the side of the coin which isn't so pleasant. He said that the candle, when it burns down, <clears throat> the name of the person on the side is extinguished, and so are they. So I said, what do you mean they are? They're not here. He said, no, but it's a weird thing. Lots of people who are the subject of this know it's going to happen, and we hear the occasional heart attacks because people are so frightened. Whether it is coterminous with the burning down of the candle or not, I don't know. But either way, if they're not there and nobody's going to kill them, will they die? I suppose the answer is some do, some don't. But I thought it was a damn good theme to use within the book The Black Candle Killings. Intriguingly, in 1993, Pope John Paul II went to a voodoo ritual and said that he felt that his religion had a lot to learn from voodoo. He was obviously looking at the other side of the coin, the, the gentler side, which is, which is curing and hopeful in all sorts of ways. I just saw the evil side. And when I saw the little Obia man coming towards me, still holding the goat's head, I thought, time to make my excuses and go. So I turned around, got in the car and hightailed it out of there. I have to say, it's a very, very chilling experience. Uh, when I got back, Frank looked at me and said, don't tell me. I looked fairly pale. I said, you've been to a voodoo ceremony. I said, well, Frank, I, I know I shouldn't have done. So don't come complaining to me if you have nightmares. So that was my experience of voodoo. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. How do you put yourself in the mind of characters that you write about? Uh, you've got to be the character. So when I'm writing for Tammy, I'm in Tammy's head. I am Tammy Pierre. So simple as that. I've got to be her. More than the other characters, you write in the frame, in the head of your main character, you're writing other characters' heads as well, but to a lesser extent, I can, if you like, I can paraphrase their feelings. But with Tammy, I live it all the time. I am Tammy. When I'm writing, I walk around the house being Tammy. Um, my wife's taken to call me, calling me Tammy, actually. No, no, I'm joking. She hasn't actually taken to call me Tammy yet. But I am Tammy. And to get down to writing takes a ritual to concentrate the mind. Um, I've got my own rituals. Have you? <laughs> well, they, they, they probably seem pretty daft, but uh, I talk to Charlie. Mm. Uh, I have a long conversation with Charlie about what I'm proposing to do, where I'm going from, where I'm coming to. Charlie doesn't argue. Charlie and I are entirely en rapport. I then get a black coffee to concentrate the mind and wake me up. Um, a couple of slices of malt loaf with lightly salted butter spread to give me a sugar shot. Then I give Charlie three strokes on the top of his head I go to work. Charlie is a teddy bear. But when you stroke him, it's like stroking a real animal. It's, I've never seen or felt anything like it. So that's Charlie. And that's my ritual for that's, getting up and running. I love it. I love it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, some of our readers have actually you know, come back and they said, why have you chosen a female lead for your story? There are so many stories using private investigators who are men. And they're always impoverished and they're always fighting from case to case. Um, J.K. Rowling, uh, writing as Robert Galbraith, uh, her character, um, Cormoran Strike, is the quintessential male investigator. 
The one difference is that he's got part of a lateness because he was previously a Marine, so he's lost it in Afghanistan or somewhere. But otherwise, he's a mess. He's looking from one commission to the next. His office is a mess. He's hungry. He looks a damn mess until the quintessential female comes along to sort him out. Why do men need to be sorted out by women all the time? We are really helpless, aren't we, at the end of the day? He was helpless. So finally, we have a woman come along to sort him out. So I've used Tally as a female because... Instead of being impoverished, she's a comfortable middle-class girl. You know, her mother was uh, the daughter of a banking family. She's French, was French. She died of breast cancer 10 years ago. Her father is a Trinidadian architect. And Tammy is middle-class. She's got the morals of an alley cat, which means that she's prepared to stick with anything which takes her fancy, whenever it does. Um, she's an overrick. She's risen to Detective Inspector very quickly. They fast-tracked her in the Met because she's got all the relevant qualifications. But she's a maverick. She's not going to settle down to rules and regulations and protocols and so on, which she'd have to do in the Met. And she's ambitious. As a private investigator, she'll make her own way as a sole practitioner. I was a sole practitioner. as an insolvency practitioner for years. She hopes to make more money. But she's flawed. She's not Supergirl. She's not Wonder Woman. She's Tammy Pierre. Tammy Pierre, who smokes too many panatellas, drinks too much vodka, um, does lines of cocaine, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> She's a challenged individual, but she likes challenges. When you're reading a novel, a thriller, you want the character to be challenged. That's where some of the fun starts and finishes. She's challenged, and she faces challenges all the time. Yes, she's flawed. But also, she's a kick-ass individual. She doesn't take any crap from anyone. She knows how to stand up for herself. On one simple occasion, when she's at Scotland Yard, and the detective inspector there says, Who needs you here? What takes you as a private investigator to come and tell us what we do? And Tammy looks at her and says, Quietly, you touch me again with that finger and I'll break it off. It has a salutary effect on the detective inspector. Who ends up by working with her. So, um, that's... That's, that's Tammy. That's why I've used a female private investigator. There were, as I said, there, weren't, there aren't that, that many female private investigators anyway. Lots of female detectives, mm. but not that many female private investigators. Oh, that's good. Now, do I, <laughs> I love it. But do I dare, you know, have you, have you based Tammy on a specific character, you know, real or fiction? I'm based on my ex-wife, <laughs> Helen, who was a real Tammy character. Tammy is over six feet tall. Uh, my ex-wife was five feet nine, but in heels, just under six feet. Uh, I met her when I was 17, coming up 18. She was 25. So I was fairly inexperienced in these sorts of matters. However, I was working at Firestone Tire Rubber Company as a trainee uh, management person, if you like, uh, office manager, depot manager, when she turned up. Now, we had three secretaries leave at short order, um, and Helen came along. And wow, from the moment she walked in, you thought, well, this is something, someone interesting. As I said, very tall, skinny as anything. She said, uh, I can't do mathematics, I can't do arithmetic. We said, well, you've got to, because you've got to do, amongst other typing, uh, invoice um, costings. I can't do that. At the end of every day, there was a pile of invoices about that thick, where they cheat costed out and typed as well as doing other letters, she actually did the work of three people. And she never made a mistake. Not once. She was exotic. She'd come across from Trinidad ostensibly to study architecture, but she was too much of a live wire. Daddy was an architect. Helen wasn't going to be an architect, so she dropped it as soon as she could. And she was intriguing. We went to a party. She sat down and suddenly started playing the piano. I didn't know who could play the piano. Well, I don't play very well. On another occasion... A gentleman there was Spanish. Helen speaking to him in Spanish. Where did you learn Spanish? I used to speak it quite a lot when I was a kid. I forgot most of it now. No, you haven't. You're speaking to this guy in Spanish. Um, I picked her up for a date one evening. And she said, I'll be with you in a sec. I'm just finishing running up this blouse. Oh, I, you could do dressmaking as well. She's making her blouse. She was very, very pernickety about the way her clothes are made. Just to digress, uh, we knew a Jamaican woman I knew, uh, who I sponsored for... Uh, British uh, naturalisation, who used to make Helen's clothes for her. Helen would go into the market, buy the materials, do a deal, which I'd never do, take expensive materials back that she got for a song, to Dale, Dale Brown to make him do a, whatever, a dress, a two-piece suit, whatever. Helen was a stickler for detail. 
If it was a millimetre out of him, those are the 32nd of an inch out, she'd scrap him. Dell used to look her up and down and say, you know, show me the thing you want me to do. You know, there it is in the magazine. Dell never once measured Helen. She was really the best of her career. She put the whole thing together and Helen would say, thank you, Dell. That, that, that really works well. So those aspects. So she made the blouse and we were going to go for a walk in Hyde Park. So she knitted me a, a sleeveless uh, cardigan, which was really comfy and warm. Uh, V-neck, zip down the front. So I put it on. She said, you're not wearing that. I said, what do you mean I'm not wearing that? She said, you're not wearing that. It's not smart enough. I said, I am wearing that. She said, no, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. She took a razor and she slashed it. She was an interesting character. Um, I had to sort of stand up for manhood. So I picked up a large book and slung it at her, aiming carefully over her head. Uh, it had a, an interesting effect. She sat down for half an hour with invisible stitching, put the whole thing back together again, and I wore it to go out. Uh, as was a volatile relationship, to say the least. The one thing, the one other thing, which perhaps my daughter's inherited from her, was she could dance brilliantly. She said to me, you know, back home people would stop and watch. She didn't need to prance all over the place. She just had a way of moving, and everyone would stop. I've never seen anyone dance that way before or since, but my daughter said, Dad, Daddy, I can dance like that. Uh, I saw her once at the end of a line of kids dancing, yeah, just like her mum. Helen's got Parkinson's disease now. She's my ex-wife, but my wife and I get on very well with her. We like her. We're very fond of her. We're going to see her on July the 11th. She can't dance anymore. She's reduced to a wheelchair. Fate, fate, fate can be quite... Uh, my mother said years ago, you know, old age is not for the faint-hearted. She's seven years older than me. And I don't look that young, do I? Well, it's just a disguise. I'm really 28. However, okay. What else can I tell you? Oh, lovely, lovely. Going back to Tammy... Because um, it's like, I, I really like the sort of um, intriguing parts of her character. How important was it for you to write about a sexually ambivalent hero? Very. Um, she's a nonconformist in a society which is increasingly nonconformist. We need nonconformist heroes, in my opinion. Um, she makes her own rules, as I said, she's a, she's a maverick. She's a big lady. She's tall, she's over six feet tall. Uh, she's got broad shoulders. Uh, she often goes into places and is mistaken for a male. She can slip into the role of male very easily. In her relationships, same-sex relationships, with her relationships with other women, uh, she takes the male lead. Uh, and she's comfortable with that, and so are her girlfriends. So it's her boyfriend, Dob, but that's, a, but that's another story, which we'll get on to shortly. She meets her ex-boss, Detective Chief Superintendent Bob Walker, uh, on the embankment one night when he invites her together with a member of the CIA uh, from me. I think he just sends her an email saying, meet, nothing else. She knows where and what. They get there, and over coffees, at the dead of night, by uh, one of the coffee stalls, he says, or the CIA man, she says to him, what's your name? He says, well, call me Felix. Felix? Well, one of my Bond heroes. I call you Felix. Okay. An American oil expert, world oil expert, has got lost in Aleppo. I have to point out that I sat down for several hours with a, an ex-Special Forces guy over lunch. We went through the whole thing. The sort of things that a person who's into personal security might be involved with. And he said, this is one possibility. So we thought, okay. We put her into Aleppo. The puzzle is this, or the quandary is this. The man that she's got to bring out, the oil expert, is an American. He's got there ostensibly getting in there for the Syrian regime, but he's not really there for them, he's for the Americans. However, he'll be safer if he appears to be there for the, for the Syrian regime. Okay, but he's now got lost. So I said to my special forces guy, why don't they just put in a, a squad to get him out? Can't do that. If the squad goes in, it immediately alerts the attention of all of the terrorist groups. They want to know what they're after, and if they get him before they do, they'll either hold him hostage or kill him. And he's a world oil expert, they've got to get him out the only way to get the man out is as unobtrusively as possible. It needs one person on a one-to-one -one security basis. Tammy says, I'll do it. I'll go in as a man. If she goes in as a woman and she's picked up by a terrorist group, she's dead. Lots of journalists have been killed in Aleppo. That's not fantasy, that's fact. She says, I'll go in as a journalist. I'll go, I'm part French. I have a slight French accent. I speak French. I'm brought up speaking French. And Bob says, we've got a, we've got a passport for you. Her name is Tammy Pierre. Her occasional Israeli boyfriend is called Dov Jordan. They take the two surnames and make Pierre Jordan, and we've got a name. If you decide to change your name to Joe Blo Josephine Bloggs, and someone shouts out, Josephine, and you're not ready for it, you don't answer. 
using the two surnames, she'll be familiar with them. And she knows that. So she goes into Aleppo with the task of bringing out our, uh, our oil expert. Um, I'll, I'll leave that as, at that point. Brief if I know what happens. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Now, this is a tricky one because this came through as uh, one of the questions um, as said to us, you know, as we're, we're marketing this. Uh, do you feel any responsibility for making Tammy multiracial? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, my ex-wife is multiracial. No, her father was black Trinidadian, her mother was white Portuguese, or her parents were anyway. The family are all mixed as can be. Frank, Desmond, Michael, Polly were all very, very dark. Sheila was white. Uh, Margaret is very fair. Um, Helen is, is mixed, as mixed as it can be. She could pass for... Spanish, North African, um, so no. And my daughter is mixed race, if you like. If she has, she won't. She doesn't. She's not interested in children. If she had children, they would be as well. In fact, her husband, sadly divorced, uh, was free from Vietnam. It would have been interesting to see the children of that sort of a union. But no, no, no. I don't feel any uh, any qualms about introducing a mixed race person. We are an increasingly mixed race society anyway. Yeah, yeah. I feel perfectly comfortable with it. And we're still in touch with the family anyway. My daughter's in touch with loads of her cousins on Facebook. I was speaking to Simone, uh, my niece, uh, last week, last Thursday. Uh, she sent me a WhatsApp of her little daughter, Skylar, who's adorable, uh, reading. She's six years old. She reads like I read when I was 25. She reads beautifully. And she calls me Uncle Andrew, you know, Simone's 45 or whatever. Hello, Uncle Andrew. Skylar, say hello to Uncle Andrew. It's, it, they're still family. They're all... I was married to him for a long time. They're still family. Oh, that's <laughs> lovely. Thank you. Now, going back to the book, um, you create suspenseful, atmospheric sort of scenes throughout the book. What's the best approach for creating these scenes? I think that you kick off by daydreaming, putting yourself in impossible situations, you know, daydream, you know, the magic of daydream, how will I handle five attackers, uh, and how will I bring a woman along to, to handle five attackers, or whatever. Then you work out the choreography of how they're going to deal with it. And sometimes it has to be dealt with physically, other times it might be dealt with verbally. And I've had incidents occur to me where I've really had to think of my feet, and although I can make a joke about them now, they weren't funny at the time. I was, years ago, when my daughter was very young, driving around the North Circular, and in the distance, I was going due east, I could hear the sound of a big vehicle. Pop, 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 pop. Oh, gosh, yeah, what's going on? And it was getting closer and closer, so I just thought, well, whatever it is, you know, let it overtake. As you come off the roundabout at the junction of the North Circular and the A1, it's a big roundabout, there's a crossing there. So I stopped to let the people cross. He didn't stop. He was in a giant coach. And when I say he didn't stop, you know how if you're in a car and you brace yourself for an accident? I braced myself because it was so close. And he didn't slow down for the pedestrians, which was crazy. They literally had to run out of his way. And I got annoyed. Tammy has a bad temper. Andrew has a bad temper. This is not a good idea. I overtook him and slowed down to 40 miles an hour. Uh, I thought, this is really childish. You shouldn't be doing this. I know it's the speed limit, but let him go. But he couldn't go because there were car, cars on the side. I thought, well, you know, what would happen if the next set of lights were red? Which they were. And I thought, what would happen if I had to stop at them? Which I did. And what would happen if he stopped right behind me? And then got out of his cab and came down the side of my vehicle and opened my door before I had time to press the central locking. And what would happen if he looked as if he weighed some 35 stone? I had fists the size of joints of beef. It happened. He took hold of me here and brought his right fist back. It's amazing how articulate some people can be. Speaking in word, short words, many words of only four letters or more, or less, he explained what he was going to do. He talked about my family, my antecedents, mm -hmm. and how most of them would never see me again. And I thought, Helen's next to me. She's a dominating character. She'll deal with it. She sat there looking stoically ahead. I thought my daughter might have the slightest idea what was going on. She said, she's a little girl. What would she know? She was screaming. She was literally screaming. And I thought, I thought, be sensible. Think of something. I thought, orthodontics. They can work wonders these days. I'll put my teeth back together again. 
Oh, well, don't be stupid. Say something before he hits you. For God's sake, say something. So I said to him, I, said, I looked him, oh yes, I looked him in the eye. If you don't want to frighten people, look away from when you speak to them. You're non-threatening. If you want to make connection, look him in the eye. I said, I suppose you realise that opening my car door constitutes a technical assault. Assault is the threat of violence. Battery is when he starts hitting. He stopped dead in his tracks. He must have thought, if that's assault, what comes next? Um, he then swung the door, so he was trying to take it off its hinges, called me an amateur, an amateur what? And stalked back to his coach. I got out of the car, barely able to stand, wandered back and took his number, and then over the company down the slide. I tried to trace him, but never could. But I drove on, and it was an interesting, if sanitary experience, in that you can be facing real danger, and you can thwart it if you can think quickly enough. And it's not the only time I had another incident, which actually I used in uh, the Lyme Regis murders. Um, I'm an insolvency practitioner, as well as a writer, and when you take a meeting of creditors, you explain to the people who are owed money the situation. This is the company history, this is the statement of affairs, which is a bit like a balance sheet, and then you ask the creditors present who they'd like to vote for as liquidator, hopefully me, because it's my income. If they don't vote for me, I, I, get, I get no income. We had some threats made in a particular case. We'd met a doctor, a very tall, distinguished-looking man from Nigeria, who had got into the business of taking business people from Nigeria, luxury cars, and shipping them back to, our, to, to Nigeria. Only lots of the cars, no, all of the cars, had gone missing. They were very, very angry creditors. One of them phoned up and said what he was going to do to the director and what he was going to do to me too. The thing is, when he's sitting at the top table next to a director and they think he's a ne'er-do-well, they lump you in with the same. I often have to say to creditors, I am not this part, I'm here to investigate this man. I'm working for you, not for him. All he's done is to initiate the instruction. Anyway, it was an alarming situation. We had two security people come along, uh, one very tall and one very short. And I said to the short guy, uh, what happens with, uh, with you if there's any fisticuffs? He said, don't worry. <laughs> I'm more than able to handle myself. Okay, another lesson. You don't need to be six feet tall or whatever to handle yourselves. <clears throat> anyway, I went through the company history. I explained the statement of affairs. There were rumblings of dissent. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, that completes the company history. Are there any questions? And, of course, the questions came thick and fast. One from a guy sitting at the front, a very tall man, as tall as our doctor. You, know, you learn a another lesson. Each time he asked a question, he stood up to ask the question. I should have told him to sit down, but I've never had it happen before. As he stood up to ask, the doctor got up to answer, and there were two big men eyeballing each other. I should really have said, look, sit down, but it had taken me by surprise. Suddenly, the creditor, a very angry man, with a mug of hot coffee, sang it over the director, and over me as well. The two security guys had rearranged the office so I could make a quick exit out the side, but sometimes you get a gut feeling about things. And I said to them, no, leave it, leave it, leave it, leave it. I took over the meeting, I said, I'm sorry, but in all my years as an insolvency practitioner, I've never come across a shambles like this. It's an absolute disgrace. Can you not behave with some sort of dignity? And they sat down and started apologising which is amazing. I'm moving to the formal business of this meeting, which is the appointment of the liquidator. Do you wish to nominate anyone else? Not, not alone. In that case, my appointment is confirmed unanimously, and I showed them out. And they all apologised on the way, including the big guy who slung his coffee everywhere. So, you can diffuse a situation if you just take hold of it. And I've used that uh, in the Lyme Regis mode. It's, uh, clearly, it's my, it's my take on it, but I've, I've used it as a, as a useful basis for an incident. Oh, it's lovely, it's lovely, because it's so important, I think, to, to base kind of these mini-stories on real facts, because that's when you bring the truth of it. Absolutely. Well, everything in life, everything you write yeah. somewhere is based on an incident in your life. Indeed. Um, to just come to things out of thin air is, is perhaps unlikely. However, <laughs> over to you. Well, <laughs> no, it's not the first time you've got yourself into trouble, because... In your bio, uh, uh, you yes. mentioned an encounter with a contract killer. Uh, this yes. is pretty scary. Uh, for those of your listeners and viewers who've never heard of the Cray twins, <clears throat> they were two, two notorious twins who operated in East London. They were really psychopathic gangsters, 
And they got away with it for a long time because they made friends with people in the film industry and amongst uh, members of parliament. And they got away with it for a while. To give you an idea how notorious they were, they dealt in prostitution, rackets, bribery, extortion, murder. Jack the Hat McVitie was murdered, I believe, with a screwdriver uh, in some basement um, bar. Uh, and George Collis, it was rumoured that George Collis had once called Ronnie Correa Pufter. Ronnie didn't like that very much. So, hearing that uh, George Collis was at uh, the Blind Beggar Pub, you, you couldn't make it up, uh, in Whitechapel, marched there with one of his associates, walked up to him, and I believe that George Collis's last words were, Ronnie, fancy seeing you here. Bang! He blew his brains out in front of the whole pub. His colleague that was there as well fired five shots into the ceiling just to make sure that nobody got up to try and take control of anything. By 67, they were out of business, they were in jail. However, they were chilling characters. And my little encounter was on an occasion when I was going to see a director of, a, of an insolvent company to discuss what we could do for him. And I was lost. I was in Essex. I think I was looking for Tilbury or somewhere. I was in a little village in the days before sat nav. I couldn't be bothered to look at a map. You know, typical male. Ask the way, don't look at a map. And, and there was a little old boy on the other side of the street hunched over, shabby old coat, only really looked a bit of a mess. I went the window down. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for Tilbury. Any ideas? Go the wrong way, mate. You'll turn around, I'll show you. So I said, well, I don't pick up hitchhikers. I'm not exactly going to be a contract killer. So I turned the car around, and he climbed in. And the first thing that I noticed was the stench. Um, you know, one of tries to avoid going down the sewers, if one possibly can. But this individual, one didn't need to go down the sewers. They were there next to me, and his fingernails were bitten down, black rhymed. But I mean, he was a harmless little old boy. He didn't like it when he smiled, because he looked in my direction, and the breath stank as bad as the rest of him. Most of his teeth were missing, but the two either side here were just blackened. Anyway, straight on, mate, go straight on. So we drove straight on. As we drove on, he chatted amiably. He said to me, um, It's all changed around here, you know, it's not like it used to be. It's all different. So I said, uh, Well, you know, areas change, don't they? Planning permission, they pull down, they re-erect, etc., etc. Nah, it's not like it used to be. It's all changed. I've been away, you know. Oh dear, I've heard that terminology somewhere before. I've been away, you know. No, no, don't be silly. No. He's not a contract killer. I mean, he's not. I mean, look at him, for God's sake. And I drove on. Then he said to me, I've been away for ten years. I'm feeling increasingly uncomfortable. Ten years? Come on, he's not a contract yet, for God's sake. Kept on nudging up against me, nudging up against me. She'd stop nudging up against me. Then he leaned towards me, he said quietly, I done it, you know. I done it for the craze. I don't believe this. I'm sitting next to a contract killer who's worked for the craze wins. He's just come out of prison after ten years of murder. This! I don't believe it. I felt that if I had a chest freezer in front of me, I'd get into it for some warmth, because I was so cold. But I thought, you don't start panicking, because that's stupid. He hasn't got a contract out of my life. I know that psychopathic killers will sometimes kill a random. After all, if he kills me as well, he's got the rest of his life in prison, a roof over his head, a full stomach, and people to talk to. Keep, no, keep going. I kept going. I felt very uncomfortable. Eventually, I got to a spot and I realised where I was. And he's still breathing all over me. I said, look, I'm okay, mate. I know where I am now. All right, all right then. Yeah. Pull over. So I pulled over. He got out. Now, thanks for that, mate. Then he leaned in. Thought, you know, what are we going to do next? Drive safely, son. <laughs> Slammed the door. He walked off and I, and I rode off. Now, that gave me an idea for a short story. If I could write... Tammy in the first person, why not write, I'm a contract killer in the first person? So I did. And in my contract killer, is different. He's not a scrawny old man. He's mixed race. His name's uh, Montgomery. I think I gave him the name Montgomery. It's a long, short story. I got some ideas for this from a pub that I worked at in the city East End, uh, the Golden Lion, which was run by Mrs. Richardson, who ran it with a rod of iron. And a certain Kennedy, who kept an eye on the clients and made sure they didn't get into fights. And um, 
Jeremy said to me, I used to work there weekends during the university holidays. Uh, Jeremy said to me, I'll point out what we now call a, as a sex worker. In those days, they were called prostitutes. Uh, when she comes in, a granite-faced woman, shortish, stocky, straight blonde hair, square-jawed. And Jeremy said to me, she complains if she has fewer than 20 customers a night. Really? He said, for the time it takes me to turn around and get a packet of cigarettes off the counter, I turn around, she's probably gone with another client. She lives opposite, I'll just go outside and sling the cigarettes through her window. So I thought, there's the beginning of a story here. So, I'm a contract killer. I started with that. The boy is orphaned after his mother's been killed by one of her clients, and he's a misfit. He's a total misfit. He gets a job as, a, if you like, a doorman at uh, Annabelle's in Berkeley Square, and he says, he thinks of pop songs, he thinks of Elvis Presley. One night he says, I've never had one night with a woman, I've never even had an hour. What would it be like to put my arms around a woman, to hold her close to me? I never have done. I'm a misfit. Then he goes on to John, John Lennon, I am the walrus. He says, John Lennon understood me, I am the walrus. What was it he said? Yellow matter custard dripping from a dead dog's eye. He was the walrus. John Lennon would have understood me. I am the walrus. And the story, when I'd finished it, I showed it to one of my B-list uh, readers, if you like. She said, wow. She said, you know what? It made me cry when I got to the end. Cry? or a contract killer? It's a story that works. I was very pleased with it, anyway, at the end of the day. Oh, you certainly engrossed yourself in it. Now, <laughs> oh, the temptation. Would you make a good... Contract no. <laughs> Good God, no. I mean, I'm sort of guy, there's a fly on a window pane, I'd open the window to let the fly out. Yeah, no way. And yet, mm. if I'm in a fairground, the first thing I do is to go to the shooting range. I'm sorry, but I do like guns. Um, and I'm not a bad shot. I did a networking evening <clears throat> with a load of others at the Territorial Army headquarters somewhere in East London, hunting donkeys years ago. As part of the evening, they take you down to the shooting range and show you one of the rifles that they use. You know, there's the target, that's of a size for the bullseye, 20 or 25 metres away, and you lie down, you take aim, and you pop away. And I was rather pleased because I got all my shots in a circle that big in the bull. <laughs> and one of the privates said, here, Sarge, take a look at this, shall we get him to join up? So, uh, will I make a good contract killer? No, but I do like guns. <laughs> Oh, I love it. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, the, um, a lot of your stories I love because it's, it's, it's the ending. You know, we, 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 we really kind of, yeah, there's a lot of effort in the ending. Um, do you prefer cliffhangers or do you like to have it neat and tidy? I think uh, I've got the best of both worlds. I think that readers, and I'm a reader, mm. want some sort of closure at the end of the day. If you leave the whole thing stark, you know, wide open, and, and he got away, or whatever, <laughs> then you know, what was the point of all that? But equally, you can be too smug in closing off a story with all the loose ends tied up. So what I try to do, or try to do, uh, with the short stories, there's a twist in the tale, which hopefully gives people a kick up the rear, but with the novels, uh, I'm looking for some sort of closure. Whether you like the closure or not is another matter. Mm. But I'm looking for some sort of closure, and at the end of the day, leaving a few threads for the reader to think, I wonder what does happen next. So although the novels are all standalone, and there's the Lime Regis and the Black Candles, and there's already a follow-up which has been written, but not yet professionally edited, uh, called The Politician's Wife, uh, so I can lead into that, but they can all be read independently, individually, if you like. But, uh, yeah, I like to leave a few loose threads. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I love it. So we're coming to the end now. So we've got to have a sort of, I think, a, ni a nice sort of um, cheeky question here. So how about, what are the three characters you would choose to invite to a dinner party? Well, obviously, obviously Tammy, because... She intrigues me. I'm developing her all the time, bringing more aspects of her character out all the time. I like Tammy. As I said, I often am Tammy. My wife sometimes calls me Tammy. Um, she's a great character. And one question I would like to ask her at a, uh, at a dinner, at a meal, is how do you feel when guys, when you overhear guys saying, is it a bloke? You know, is it real? Is it a woman? Is that embarrassing? Or... Do you take comfort from the fact that there are enough people 
who see you for what you are, which is beautiful and exotic. In fact, in the, in the a following book, uh, she meets the, the mother of a judge who's very, very stern and upright, <laughs> all the rest of it. And she says, tell me, my dear, do you realise how beautiful you are? Well, which I think is very sweet, yeah, yeah. because she is. And I'd like to know how she lives with it. How does she live with that aspect of her life? The second character that I like is, is Dov, obviously, Dov Jordan. Her sometime boyfriend who wants to marry her, but she said, Dov, it'll never work. I've got the morals of an alicab, as, as I said earlier on. It would never work. Now, you want someone who's going to give you some measure of fidelity. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Okay. Dov is, again, in the same way as Tammy, is not a quintessential woman. Although, when she's pregnant, she recognises and embraces her femininity. And why not? Why not? He is an old-fashioned alpha male. She's a big girl. She's six foot one. He's six foot five. I don't harp on it. But he's quiet, he's reserved, he's confident with himself, and he gives her credit where it's due. Men like to think of themselves as drivers. It's a macho pastime. My car will do 140 miles an hour. Well, when they get caught in a situation where Tammy's doing the driving and someone says to the dog, you should have driven, he says, no, I shouldn't. She's a better driver. So this is an alpha male confident in himself as a man. So I'm exploring masculinity, femininity, and the crossover, and the overlaps, because they are important, because they are more relevant, I think, in modern society than perhaps they've ever been in the past. We're less bigoted than we used to be. We're much more accepting than we used to be. Trolls aren't accepting, but most other people are. My other character would obviously be Chief Superintendent uh, Bob Walker. Uh, Bob's a smashing guy. Um, got a couple of sons, are doing very well. Uh, been married for over 20 years. And he's the guy that nearly kicked Tammy out of the force. Uh, when she'd made it Detective Inspector, she was fast, uh, fast tracked to it. She was cut up one day while she was driving with her sergeant. She was cut up by another driver who annoyed him. Uh, she sounded the horn and the driver gave her the finger. So she chased after him and wrecked his car. She totaled it. The sergeant had been laughing at her. You know, a woman driver stopped laughing, went pale. The car was total. The driver was fine. She knew what she was doing. And Bob Walker had her in and said, you ever do anything like that again? You are out. He said, it's not just that skilled driving. It's not just the temper. It's the fact that we can't trust you to make a sensible value judgment, to make a sensible decision. So one more squeak out of joint and you're gone. But Tammy wanted to have her own practice anyway. So, so eventually she left the force. Oh, oh, those, those, those are my three uh, to have to dinner. <laughs> oh, thank you, Andrew. That's been wonderful. So, um, we've got some questions. Uh, people have um, been texting us some questions. So, let, let's have a look at the questions um, from, from our wonderful audience. So, are you ready for some I am. Live if questions? anybody catches me on the hop, then what I would say is, if I can't answer it now, then email you, or me, or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, and, I'll give them a, and I'll give them an answer that way. But let's see if I, if I, can, uh, if I okay. can answer them. So, the first question is, is Andrew's first wife supportive of his use um, of her background as inspiration for the Tammy Yeah, it's a good character? question. Absolutely. She's really, in fact, she's got copies of, of the books. She's in a care home, as I said, she's got Parkinson's, but yeah, she's got copies of the book there, which she displays proudly, but yeah, she's very, very happy. Oh, oh, that's lovely. That was from uh, Christopher Norris. Okay. Um, the second one is from Nick Blanchard. Hello, yes. Nick. Thank yeah. you for your questions. Yeah. Um, why did you use the pseudonym? Out of curiosity. Why do I use which suit? My name is Andrew Siegel. I haven't used a pseudonym. <laughs> or does it mean why have I used Tammy Pierre as the name for my... My, my latest book, yes, we haven't, we haven't got a, a link to that, so maybe we can ask uh, Nick just to finish off the question, which is the uh, pseudonym uh, referring to? Yeah. Um, in the meantime, the second question that uh, Nick's put forward is, are there any more plans for more books? Well, yeah, I mean, as I said, I've yeah. already written. Well, you've written uh, too, uh, haven't you? Yeah, well, I'm working on... A further follow-up, yes, I've written, well, I've got other books that I've written, yes, I've written a book about Del Brown, the, uh, the dressmaker, the Jamaican called Toa, which hasn't seen the, the light of day yet, but my wife liked that very much. I've already written, as I said earlier on, um, the, uh, the Politician's Wife, that's already to be edited, I'm working on another book as a follow-up to that. Oh, oh, that's fantastic. So, um, I've got a, there's two more questions coming up, so if you give us a 
half a tick, we're just going to uh, transfer them. Okay. So, <laughs> there's nothing like live. Thank you very much for your questions. I'm delighted. It's exciting. I'm, I'm delighted you've got an audience. I had no idea whether anyone would be interested or not. I'm yeah. delighted you've got some, uh, oh. some watchers and listeners. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, have you got any more questions? Yeah. Okay. Do, are we going? Good. We have two more questions. Bear with us a moment. Oh, it's been fascinating. I know with one one question that um, popped into my mind was uh, Dove proposed to Esther, didn't he? Yes. And um, and you often wonder why did he pose um, <laughs> to Esther when he's in love with Tammy? Yeah, because she, because Tammy's turned him down. It's as simple as that. Uh, and he's been with Esther for some time. He's known her for a long time. Mm. He wants a family. Dove is early 40s, before it's too late. I mean, you can be a father up to whatever age you like, but there comes a time it's not such a good idea. Yes. Uh, perhaps, I don't know, past 50. We've got film stars, uh, Mick Jagger producing kids at 70 plus, but being practical, when a guy gets past 45, he gets blooming hard work. <laughs> so uh, he wants a, he marries Esther in the hope of starting a family. Oh. Therein lies a whole raft of other aspects <laughs> and events that uh, I shall dwell upon just some other time. <laughs> Definitely. We might do some more of these Q&As. Um, okay, so um, how much do you write before you start writing the story? Character notes, scenarios? A lot of it, I do as I go home. When I start anything, whether it's a book or a short story, mm. I can't just jump off the end of, uh, of a plank. I can't walk the plank and hope that I, miss, that, I, you know, that I hit the scene, don't hit the bottom deck. I know how it's going to end at the time that it starts. However, when I wrote The Hamilton Conspiracy, I got wrong somewhere. I painted myself into a corner. And the American publisher, I worked it out, said I like the double twist. But it worked out okay. I know Jeffrey Archer once said that he does on occasion sit down and start to write and work his way through it until he gets to the end, not knowing how it's going to end. I've got to know how it's going to end. I mean, that, uh, the black candles, got very, very complicated. And if I hadn't known where I was going, I would have got totally lost. So mm. what, do I sit down? I've got a few ideas, a few scribbled notes. Yeah, I do make notes. Mm. Uh, I think about the writing day and night. If I wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning with an idea and I don't make a note of it, it's gone with the morning. Yeah. So I make lots of notes uh, in the dead of night, as and when it occurs to me. But, uh, yeah, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy it as a, uh, uh, more than just a pastime. <laughs> but, yeah, I hope oh, that answers the question. That's nice. So, have we got some more questions? Yes, up, oh, we've got another question. Thank you. Thank you very much all for your questions. So, um, right, uh, Nick Blanchard, did you use the pseudonym... Um, any plans for more books? No, I think we got that one. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not sure what I'm, I'm, ge I'm guessing that Nick may be asking about the name of Tammy Pierre. Where does that come ah, from? He might okay. be. Yeah. I mean, it's not well, a, it's a, character, it's a character's name. It's a character's name. Um, I, wanted a, I wanted an elegant, if you like, English-sounding first name. Uh, Tammy's father calls her Tamsin. He doesn't oh, call her yes. Tammy. Everyone calls her Tammy, he calls her Tamsin. She calls him Papa <laughs> if, she's, uh, if she's nervous and Dad, Dad if she's relaxed yeah. because she speaks French. She refers to her mother's memo. Yeah. Uh, when she swears, it's in French, mon dieu, uh, etc. She doesn't use too many four-letter words. Um, oh, with that yes. in mind, yes. I, I had to give a French-sounding surname which had to be Trinidadian because Tammy's mother has married a, a bloke whose, whose name is... I'd, knew, I'd used the name Baptiste in a previous book, yeah. so I picked on Pierre. There are quite a few Pierres in there, so we've got Tammy Pierre that way. Ah, oh, so it could, there's also um, a relationship when um, she was over in Aleppo and she was renamed uh, or had the fake yeah. name, what's it, Jordan Pierre? Pierre, Pierre. No, Pierre Jordan. Yes, Pierre Jordan. Yes. yes. So is there a connection there? Did you use, you know, were you using mixing? No, I just thought. Mm -hmm. Put yourself in the position of Felix or Detective Chief yeah. Superintendent. How are you going to get in there? Make sure she doesn't forget what a pseudonym is. Now, a, a professional isn't going to forget, but anyone can make a mistake. Computers can go wrong, for heaven's sake, and get jammed. <laughs> so the idea is we've taken two names that she knows, her own surname and Dov's surname, and we've got what looks like a name, a Christian name and a, and a surname, Pierre Jordan. Terrific, and it, I think it worked. Well, yeah, because she had to switch uh, sexes, didn't she? Well, that's that right. Yeah. That's right. She goes in as a male, mm -hmm. as, a, uh, as a journalist for Paris Match, and she makes sure that uh, Jer Jerry Sumner knows that he's a, a journalist for the Washington Post, 
and um, she plays the part of a male. Does she get discovered as a male? Does she not get discovered? How will she cope with it if anyone uh, suspects it? Read the book and you'll find out. <laughs> But she gets shot, doesn't she? Mm. Oh, that's tricky. <laughs> Very. <laughs> yes, how's she going to hide her sexuality there? Well, we, we won't go into that. But, <laughs> but the thing is, <clears throat> I like not only mixed relationships, mixed race, mixed religion, I like the idea that Tammy, in days of horrendous anti-Semitism, owns to being Jewish. Her mother was Jewish and she'd been brought up Jewish. So we have a black Jewish girl, or mixed race Jewish girl, and she forms a relationship with Nabil of mm. the Free Syrian Army. Nabil is a Muslim. I thought it was great. I know loads of firms of accountants that are half Jewish and half Asian. Muslim, Jewish, whatever. Mm. And apart from the lunatics out there that want to patrol our streets and start killing everybody, most people actually are nice. <laughs> I've been an IP and consultancy practitioner for over 30 years, and most people want to pay the mortgage, bring up the kids, and have a holiday, a roof over their heads, and my characters are no different at the end of the day. So I love the idea of mixing the races and mixing the religions. It's important. Yeah. And I'm not writing politics. I'm not spewing anything for anyone's benefit. But if anyone smiles and says, yeah, like that, <laughs> all what a good. Oh, fantastic. Now, a very short one, because mm. we're just about to wrap up. Okay. Uh, this is from David. Did you start the novel with the idea of a character or a plot? Oh, sorry, from Daniel. I think that you're, you're really looking at, uh, at, a, at, a, at a bit of a casserole here. They, they tend to come together at the same time. They rely on each other. Because of what she is, she finds herself in the situations that she does and she can cope with them because of what she is. Um, would I have had a different character for a different plot? I don't know. In the, in the, in the story Teller, you know, my character is, uh, is Jamaican um, because it's based on Del Brown's life. You know, Del, as I said, was was Helen, my first wife's uh, dressmaker. Uh, in the case of Tammy, the things were really concurrent. I wanted a character that I thought would be, as I say, flawed, but exotic, interesting, would make readers sit up and think, this is different, with plots that she would be able to handle. So really, the two things went concurrently. Mm. Oh, it's a good no, question. It's a very nice question. Thank you. Thank you, audiences, for um, fantastic questions. And, um, well, I think it's now come to a close. So I'd like to thank Andrew. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to your stories. Fascinating. It's just like, oh, my goodness, the mind of an author. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever happens. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you, you know, here today. I hope you'll come back again. It's been my pleasure. <laughs> if you've enjoyed it and your audience have, I should be delighted. Oh, that's right. I'd like to thank the audience for joining us and listening. And also to our fabulous crew for yes. filming what and streaming. <laughs> Very impressive. Um, if you'd like to buy Andrew's latest crime thriller, The Black Candle Killings is available at Waterstones Bookshop and online on Amazon. Uh, so that should be pretty easy. Or, if you get in touch with Happy London Press, uh, you can order your copy, and I'll ask Andrew to personally sign it. Yeah, sure. We Absolutely. can put your special message in, which we'd be delighted to do, and then yeah. post it off to you. Um, but in the meantime, thank you to everyone, and have a very pleasant week, and take care, keep safe, and um, ta-ta for now. <laughs>